0: You can go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to the book of Esther, chapter 6. Esther, chapter 6. And as you're turning there, I want to, just by way of introduction, point out something that I think is um, probably well known to all of us. And that's simply this, that life seems to be full of ironic reversals, The things that we often think are best for us are often the things that are the worst for us. Uh, Yes, fast food saves us time and tastes good, but it makes us feel bad and shaves years off our lives. Throwing ourselves into our work and career can often get us ahead and pat our bank account, but can cost us our marriage, our family, and our friends. Sports... Hobbies, entertainment can be fun and oftentimes refreshing, but they can, if not careful, distract us from what is most refreshing and what is most life-giving, time with God, involvement in the church. The things that we desire most can be the very things that can lead to our destruction. But there are also redemptive reversals. Ironies that are working for our good even when it doesn't feel that way or seem that way. Things that God is redeeming and reversing in order to display His glory and ultimately it is for the good of His people. And when it comes to the book of Esther... As we have noted throughout this entire study, it appears that evil is winning. It appears that darkness is going to get the final say. It appears that good and righteousness and justice are losing. It appears that God is not there. But appearances can be deceiving. And all of those assumptions, if you've had them up to this point in the letter, we've done our best to kind of debunk all those, but, but if those assumptions have remained, and if you've been maybe marching through this story, unaware of how it ends, all of those thoughts and feelings are about to change, and not just... Be changed, but actually reversed through a series of ironic twists and turns that are going to bring about the redemption of God's people and put forth his glory like few other things possibly could. The clock is ticking on the Jewish people in this letter, but even more so for this man named Mordecai, Esther's older cousin. Haman, the villain in this true story, he hates Mordecai because Mordecai refuses to bow down to him to show him honor. Haman has quickly built a 75-foot-high pole on which he seeks to impale Mordecai. And he's all set to enact this plan. He's built this giant pole on his front lawn, and he wants now to rush into the presence of the king in order to ask the king to grant his request. Let me put Mordecai to death in public display. Let me once and for all smash this man's prideful resistance. But God can reverse the fate of his people, and it only takes one night to do it. We see here God's redemptive reversals on full display, and we see it first through the sovereignty of God in the smallest of details. I want to read just the first five verses of chapter 6. Look at it with me. It says, on that night, the king could not sleep. He gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, well, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. Now this here marks the pivot point in the book of Esther. This is the hinge point, the point on which the entire story begins to turn around. Verse one, the narrator actually indicates that this is the change in the story, everything's about to be reversed, and he does so through a literary device in Hebrew called a chiasm. In other words, he's structured the entirety of the letter so that if you were reading in the Hebrew and you understood the, the literary genre and the devices used, you would look at it and you would say, right here, at this specific point, the author wants us to pay special attention. This point right here is the most important point in the letter. You say, well, how, how can that be? I, I thought it would be the point where, where Esther finally, finally listened to the counsel of Mordecai and decided that yes, for such a time as this, right? That's the point we want to be the most significant in this letter. For such a time as this, Esther, now God has placed you here so that you could save his people. And that's a phenomenal point of interest in this story. It is pivotal to the unfolding of this story. But here's the problem with making that the center of the story it makes Esther the hero of the story. And the author, the narrator, wants you and me to be aware that Esther and Mordecai, they're not the heroes of the story. You know who the hero of the story is? I'll give you one guess. God is the hero of the story. This entire book is a story about God, uh, about the faithfulness of God to his covenant people, the faithfulness of God to protect and preserve his people against all odds, when things seem impossible, when the darkness is overwhelming. And you just have to imagine for a moment how important this is to the people of God who are living in exile, feeling that God had abandoned them, feeling that because of their sin, maybe they were forsaken. And then God comes in, in the middle of this story, where the name Name of god isn't even mentioned but his fingerprints are everywhere and god says i haven't forgotten about you i also think listen this is incredibly important just as a practical application for our lives and here's why because we live in a world we walk out into this world and you want to know what this world tells us all the time life is all about you Every message we hear, it's, it's about you, what you want, what you need, what you deserve. And you just got to go out there and, and, and fight for you. But you see, listen, th- that is such an exhausting, exhausting pursuit. And it's emptying, it's bankrupt, it's, it's draining. And you want to know what humanity needs? Humanity needs to realize that this world, this universe, is not fundamentally about us. It's about something bigger than us. It's about something outside of us. We need to be brought face-to-face with transcendent truths. Truths about God and the reality of his glory and his beauty and his power. Because in light of that, our existence makes sense. And So here, the author brings us face-to-face with the transcendence and sovereignty of God over all things. And what we see here is that God is able to change the course of human affairs for the good of his people and the glory of his name. He is the focal point of this story. But Christian, if you haven't learned it by now, here's one of the things you need to grasp. He is also supposed to be the focal point of your story. How do we see this here unfold? How does the author draw our attention to the the transcendent reality of God and his sovereignty? Well, we we see it here. After the king's um, intriguing banquet with Esther in chapter 5, remember, Esther's come to the king. She's she's asked the king to attend a banquet, and and Haman is called to attend it with her. And instead of springing on to the king, this request to save the, the Jewish people from certain death... She invites the king to another feast, and Haman to come along as well. And in between these two feasts, what we see is that for some reason, it just so happened that the king had insomnia. On this night of all nights, the king is sleepless in Susa. There's no apparent reason for it. Except God's sovereign purpose to deliver his people. But God's sovereignty doesn't end there. God actually directs his activities for the night. Now I don't know about you, but, but when you're having trouble sleeping, what do you do to try and get yourself back to sleep? You get a book, right? Some of you're like, no, I put it on Netflix. Listen, they don't have Netflix, there's no streaming, so he does the next best thing, he gets a book. And he doesn't just get any book, he gets like, hey, let's, let's go to the, the history of my reign and let me, let me hear about all the good things people have done for me. And he doesn't read the book, he puts on Audible, he says, you know, Alexa, read this to me. And they read the book of the Chronicles to him. He's listening to a reading of the government records, the chronicles of his reign. But instead of lolling him to sleep, something jolts him awake. He hears about an attempt from two of his eunuchs to assassinate him and how one man intervened, a man by the name of Mordecai. Now, in situations like this, part of the reason for recounting these deeds is to make sure that people were properly rewarded for serving the king by revealing assassination plots. This is a great deterrent and a great help to preserving your own life as the king. Well, what do you do to make sure people don't get away with treachery? You you just you reward people like crazy for uncovering these kind of plots. So he asks the simple question: Well, what's been done to honor this man Mordecai? And to his shock, he hears the answer is nothing. Nothing's been done to reward this man. This obviously is unacceptable and he wants to rectify this immediately. And so here's what you and I need to pay attention to. What looks like a simple or a minor oversight is all a part of the plan of God to save and redeem his people. I hope, I hope you are beginning to see that both good times and bad times are within the plan of God in your life. In the biggest things and in the smallest things, listen, God is at work. There's nothing in your life outside of the purview of God's sovereignty. And Esther is a living illustration of Romans eight twenty eight that God is indeed working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God always is. Well, what should we do? That's the, the question. What should we do to honor this man, Mordecai? Well, the king has this habit of being indecisive. Remember, he's a a weak, petty, kind of a tyrannical king. And he can't make up his own mind. So, of course, he runs to his advisors. Somebody somebody tell me what I should do to honor this guy. Well, verse 4, he asks who's in the court. Again, you just have to see this. It's so random, right? It's so coincidental. Who's in the court? Haman's in the court. You're right-hand man. He just so happens to be there. Now, it's likely that this is odd hours for Haman to be in the, the court of the king. Remember, he's there on his own errand, but he's there at just the right time, exactly when the king needs some counsel. Haman probably thinks this is his lucky day. I came here to, to seek the king, and, and now the king's seeking me. This was such a providential moment, orchestrated only by God who is sovereign over all things. You know, the normal way that God works to accomplish His purposes is is not through extraordinary miracles. That's so often what we want to see from God, but it's more often than not, not the way He works. God often works, regularly works through the regular ordering of providence the little details that are all under his control. One author says it like this, that our God is so great, so powerful, that he can work without miracles through the ordinary events of billions of human lives through millennia of time to accomplish his eternal purposes and ancient promises. That's power. That's power. Any deity can do some display of power every once in a while. Only the true and living God can orchestrate every single minute detail of human existence. God is always in control, even over the little things in our lives. Verse, we see this unfolding throughout the rest of this chapter. There there are seven to eight coincidences in this chapter. Sovereign coincidences. But as Christians, we know this. We don't believe in coincidences. We believe in providence. And don't miss the point here. God is sovereign over everything and everyone. Is there mystery in this? What about human responsibility? What about the existence of evil? How does that all work? Listen, there is mystery and tension and there's lots of things that we we don't quite fully understand and if you somehow think that you've come to fully comprehend the sovereign God of the universe, then the problem is actually with you, okay? Your view of God is actually probably very far from the truth and I want to just take a step back from you. We can't pretend to comprehend all that God is, but you see the sovereignty of God isn't some doctrine that's intended to frustrate us, intended to cause us to live in constant turmoil because we can't figure it out. Do you realize that the very doctrine of the sovereignty of God is intended to be a great comfort to your soul? Knowing that God is in control of everything is supposed to comfort your soul. If our God, think about it like this if our God is not sovereignly working all things according to the counsel of his will, but he's simply reacting and trying to contain the chaos of this world, then listen to this, consider this, then we have no guarantee about anything that he has promised or said. We cannot be sure that God is going to be able to bring about what he has said if he is not fully in control of all things. But because he is sovereign, I can be comforted by the fact that even though things listen, even though things didn't go the way I planned, it's okay. Even though I, di- I didn't get that job that I was expecting. Even though that diagnosis wasn't what I hoped it would be, even though that relationship didn't work out the way that I had planned, God is working all things for my good. Even, I want you to consider this, even my sinful actions. This is a great comfort to the soul. And listen, by the way, the opposite of believing in the sovereignty of God is believing that God is not sovereign, and that leads to what? Fear, anxiety, worry, trusting in someone or something else other than God, more likely than not trusting in yourself. But I, I love this. Listen, we can, be con- we can be convinced that even though we've, we've all, listen, let's just be honest, we've all messed up in this room, Every one of us has, has lives of sin, past, present, and even into the future. Listen, we're, we're going to commit acts of sin. We're going to have thoughts and intentions of our heart that are, are sick, sick and wicked and sinful. And yet, here's the great news. God knows all of that. And God can take even what we mean for evil and turn it around, not only for our good, but for his glory. That's so comforting to my soul. That's not an excuse to go out and sin, by the way. There still are consequences for your sin. But it is, it is incredible to know that my worst mistakes can be taken by God and actually reversed and be turned around and be made a trophy of his grace. This is what we see God doing here. The ordinary little things God is controlling. He's doing it all for the good of his people that he has promised to save and ultimately he's doing it for the glory of his great name. Next, we see God's redemptive reversals through the stupidity of sin in the safest moments. This is arguably the most ironically comic scene in the entire Bible. We said at the beginning of this this study when we started the book of Esther that it was filled with humor. And I honestly think that when you read this chapter here, I mean, it's hilarious. It's hilarious the way that God's providence and sovereignty are put on display. There's an incredible poetic justice, a beautifully ironic redemptive reversal. I mean, here, here is Haman out in the courts the king asks for him. The timing is just impeccable. And so verse 6, look at. So Haman came in and the king said to him, "What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor?" And Haman said to himself, "Whom would the king delight to honor more than me?" Like he's like he's talking about me. And so Haman He comes up with this brilliant idea. He says to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes in the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. This is amazing. I honestly don't think it gets much better than this in the Bible. At this point, Haman thinks this is the best day ever. It's going to end up being Haman's horrible, no good, very bad day very quickly. <laughs> you see, we look at, at Haman and just, <laughs> look, assumptions can make us all look like fools. And Haman is filled with assumptions because Haman is filled with sin, pride. And, and Haman is filled with sin and pride because Haman thinks he is safe and secure. He doesn't think his sin is a problem. He's not worried about his sin. He doesn't care or think about what it will cost him. He thinks he is perfectly okay. And I just, I want to reiterate something that I I believe you know, but if you don't or maybe you struggle with this, I hope this is helpful for you today. Sin will always make you stupid. Like, I don't like that word. You shouldn't say that in church. Take that up with God. Proverbs 12, verse 1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Okay? Kids, talk to your parents later. Listen to what Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 4, okay? This is the weeping prophet, prophet who's talking about God's people in, in their rejection and rebellion against God, okay? He, he, remember, Jeremiah goes to deliver this crazy message telling the people that when if you don't repent and you certainly won't, you are gonna be dragged off into exile. You're gonna lose everything. And listen to what he says to the people of God. This is from the mouth of Jeremiah, but through the spirit of God, okay? For my people are foolish, they know me. Not. They are stupid children. This is God. They have no understanding. They are, listen to this, they are wise in doing evil, but how to do good they know not. Sin is stupid. Sin makes you stupid. We don't want to be stupid. Amen? Okay. God doesn't want us to be stupid either. That's the message here. But I want you to see how stupid sin is, okay? In Haman's life, he is an amazing example of what all of humanity loves to do. Did you notice in what he wants? You, you just listen again. What does he want to do to the man whom the, the king delights? Did you, did you piece it together? You know what he's saying to do? Treat him like the king. Get the king's robe, put it on him. Get the king's crown, put it on him. Why? Why does he do that? Because Haman wants to be king. He he wants the position. He wants the power. He wants the prestige. I mean, that's where he finds his significance. It's when he is in control. When he's sitting on the throne. But you see, deep down inside... In all of us, because of our sinful nature, every one of us wants to be king. It's a reality as old as the Garden of Eden where the the serpent tempted Adam and Eve and ultimately what was he tempted to do? You don't need God as your king. You don't need to listen to God. You don't need to obey God. You deserve to be king. You can be like God. Deep down inside, listen, instead of giving God the glory, honor, and praise, our sinful nature craves those things. We crave the glory. We crave the honor. We crave the praise. And just like our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, who, like Haman, were given unwise counsel. Remember, Haman was given this unwise counsel to build this this hole in the middle of his front yard upon which to impale Mordecai. That was the counsel given by his wife and friends. Just like Adam and Eve and Haman, listen, our sin causes us to stupidly elevate our own self-importance and our own evil desires and to stupidly minimize the glory, honor, and praise of God. That's what sin does. That's why it's stupid. What's ironic here is that Haman gives great advice. (laughs) And the king accepts this advice. It's like, this is Haman. This is a brilliant, brilliant idea. And then he drops this bombshell on him. Look at verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Mordecai? (laughs) Now, Haman is to be the mediator of the king's goodwill to his hated enemy. And Haman is, is now silent, he's dumbstruck. But he does what the king asks. So Haman, verse 11, took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai. Just imagine the humiliation here. Imagine the seething anger burning in his heart. And he led him through the square of the city proclaiming before him. I wonder if he did this in a monotone voice. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but... Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered, so much shame. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, listen to this, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him but will surely fall before him. And at this point, Haman's thinking, why didn't you say that the first time I said, let's build a stake in our front lawn? Pride goes before the fall. So obvious in this passage, isn't it? And the irony again is that Haman has actually constructed his own Humiliation. But there's a lesson in here for all of us, right? It's the moment we feel safe, the moment we feel secure in our sin is the moment when we are most in trouble. This is what Paul says, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Be careful when you think you're standing firm. That's the safety and security. Lest you fall. Why? Because no temptation has seized you except what's common to man. Get ready. But but listen, the temptation... the moment you like, I've got this all figured out. The Christian life is going well. I'm doing everything I should. I've, I've, look what I've done. The moment you get to that place where it becomes, again, all about you and nothing about God is the moment you're about to take a massive fall. And throughout scripture, God vindicates the righteous and he disrupts the plans of the wicked And again, the irony, the redemptive reversals are fascinating because God will very often use their own desires, their own plans, and their own actions to bring about their own very downfall. He's mortified and he's ashamed. The tables have turned, his wife and his friends, this is again, how ironic. You have to see all of the, the irony here. His wife and his friends now become the bearers of bad news but of good theology. You wanna attack the covenant people of God? That's a battle you can't win. And I just, again, can I remind you, this side of the cross, we are the covenant people of God. We are the people that have been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. We have entered into the new covenant by his blood. That's what we celebrate uh, when we uh, take the Lord's Supper. We're reminded of the new covenant. And listen, what's true of the people in the Old Testament is true of the people of God in the New Testament. Our God will never leave or forsake us. Our God has promised to be with us even to the end of the age. Our God has promised, listen, that darkness will not overcome the light. And our God is faithful to his covenant. God is watching over his people. And some of you, you need to hear this today because you, maybe you just feel alone. You feel like God is distant. You feel like maybe the circumstances of your life are, are telling you something other than what is true in the scriptures. And that is this, that God is watching over you. God deeply cares for you. He has not forgotten you. But Haman's example also shows humanity's sinful tendency towards self-deception. We can so easily deceive ourselves in our sin. We can convince ourselves that we're actually more safe and secure than we are. We can convince ourselves that our sin is not going to lead to our destruction. Our sinful desires deceive us into believing that we are justified in our evil actions, that we are clever enough to not get caught in our own web. People sin, listen, people sin with the delusion that while others may get caught, they will not. I want to say that again, because there's there's some people in here who need to hear this right now. People sin with the delusion that though other people get caught, they never will. And believe me, that's a delusion. The irony is that we are usually undone by our own actions. Sin makes you stupid. And what we also learn here from Haman is a lesson that was drilled into me as a young boy by my mother, be sure your sins will find you out. Be sure your sins will find you out. That put the fear of God in me as a child, but it was a good fear. And can I just say that all sin leads to death, but hidden sin often brings sudden destruction. All your sins going to lead to some kind of destruction in your life and Sometimes it seems like it's small or minimal, and and maybe it is, relatively speaking, but hidden sin, hidden sin, listen to this, hidden sin has a way about bringing sudden and great destruction. That's to say nothing of the slow destruction of your own soul. Sin has the ability, especially hidden sin, of deadening your conscience, quenching the spirit causes you to lack joy and peace. There's a restlessness in your soul, an uneasiness, an anxiety, a fear, a worry that produces self-consciousness and, and, and selfishness. Sin has this interesting way, listen, of of being cyclical in nature. It it doesn't just kind of stay steady or neutral. Sin breeds sin, breeds sin, breeds sin, and it breeds more sin and different sin and worse sin. Especially, especially, hear this, especially when it's hidden sin. So we saw in Psalm 19, Those hidden sins lead to presumptuous sins. Those presumptuous sins, they can lead you, listen to great transgressions where that sin has massive dominion over your life. And God wants you to be spared from that reality. Hidden sin often increases our fear, anxiety, our anger, and our sense of hopelessness. Sin never satisfies. It only, only brings death and destruction to you, and sadly, listen, to countless others who are impacted by it. And that's the blindness of sin. The self-deception of sin is so often, my sin is only hurting me. My sin is just about me. It's not hurting anybody else. It doesn't affect anybody else. But listen, your sin has radical impact on those people who you say you love. Your sin has an impact on the body of Christ. If you're a child of God in here today, can I just encourage you with this? God will often expose your hidden sin as an act of his grace. I know this is hard to hear because so often, listen, there's two ways this can go in your life if you have hidden sin. Actually, there's three ways. The first way is this. You can live in your hidden sin and in the misery of your sin, suffering the consequences internally and even externally, but nobody may never, may ever know about the sin in your life. Nobody will know. You just go through your life killing your conscience, destroying your soul, and one day, one day that sin will be exposed in the presence of God, the judge of the universe, It won't be hidden. Or, listen, you can go through your life in hidden sin. And God, listen, in his kindness and grace can expose that sin. He he can make sure it gets out even though everything in you wants to keep it buried. And I promise you, when it comes out like that, it it is so much more humiliating. It is embarrassing. I mean, it is just awful. And by the way, can I just add this as a consequence? When your sin gets exposed, the wreckage of that exposure, because you weren't the one to bring it to light, the wreckage of that exposure is actually generally speaking exponentially greater than if you do this, okay, than if you do it like this. You know you have hidden sin. You're convicted about the sin, and you know God is saying, bring the sin to light. And when you do, although it's so hard, it's so painful, it is embarrassing and humiliating. Listen, it is so much better when you listen to the Spirit of God Who is working, listen, you have to believe this working for your good, for the good of your soul, for the good of those around you. And I want you to notice here there is no sign of Haman repenting here, is there? None. He digs his heels in. He he understands. I mean, there is a worldly sorrow here. I mean, he's ashamed. He's embarrassed. He even knows that this is likely going to lead to his ultimate destruction. And what does he do? He buries it. He suppresses it. And again, you know, you've heard it said before. I'm sure you have. You can humble yourself or God can humiliate you. I like that word better than humble you. God can humiliate you. And humility is God's desire of us. It's actually a mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ. So if you're hiding sin, you should not feel safe and secure. Some of you in here do, and the Spirit of God is pressing in right now. And the worst thing you can do is do what Haman did and just kind of suppress it and forget about it and not deal with it. The best thing you can do is expose it and get it out to the open and deal with it by the grace of God. And what's so sad here is verse 14. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. It's almost like it's saying, listen, Haman ran out of time. He had the moment. The moment was right there, but he ran out of time. All of a sudden we're moved into the next scene and we see next God's redemptive reversals through the salvation of man in the severest of circumstances. And what we see next in this next chapter is that God is able to turn the most desperate circumstances into displays of his grace. So they hurried, verse 1, sorry, so the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. I mean, man, this spirals out of control in a hurry for Haman. They're feasting and drinking, and Esther, again, is given the opportunity to ask whatever she wishes, and, and then she just she lays out the scene so beautifully. It's kind of reminiscent of Nathan with David, isn't it? Telling this story so that all of a sudden, the king says, oh, you know, his anger is, is incited as the story builds. He's just furious. Who would think to harm my queen in such a way? It's not just an attack on my queen. This is an attack on me as king. And with his anger incited at the perfect moment, she unveils who he is, the, the enemy, Haman. He's right here. The king needs a little bit of a breathing room, so he goes for a walk in the garden. And when he comes back in, he sees Haman just in, in a fit, a panic. And he's, he's kind of falling on Esther, certainly not trying to harm her. I don't think that's the intent, but the king sees it as an excuse to enact a quick and decisive punishment on this man. And the scene is steeped in irony. The redemptive reversals all over the place. I mean, just consider how the entire conflict between Haman and the Jewish people begins with Mordecai the Jew dishonoring Haman the Agabite by refusing to fall before him. And in his final scene, Haman falls before a Jew and a Jewish woman at that. Whom he has unknowingly condemned to death, he falls before her to plead for his own life. On the couch of this Jewish queen, he falls all the way from his exalted position as second over the empire to a disgraceful death as a traitor. The enemy of the Jews is executed for being an enemy of the king. The sudden reversal of these expected outcomes gives Haman's story a tragic irony. And it reminds us, listen, that all of a person's best laid plans can in an instant, listen, in an instant be turned to produce the destruction of that person. And in this scene, Esther functions again as this mediator, an advocate on behalf of the people of God. She comes to the rescue of God's people who are facing certain death and destruction. And it is not just the salvation of God's people we see on display, but the punishment of God's enemies. Salvation always comes with judgment. One author says, Regarding this that the narrative tension of the conflict between the Jews of Persia and their enemy Haman is not simply resolved It's resolved through reversals Haman's plan could have simply been stopped and the status quo preserved instead There is a great reversal of fortune an event intended to harm the Jews actually results in the opposite against every expectation Instead of being destroyed, the Jewish people are not only delivered, but empowered to the high rank of Esther and Mordecai. The empowered destroyer Haman not only loses his power, but is himself destroyed. God not only saves his people, God destroys their enemies. God's judgment will eventually fall. It has to. The only question you need to ask is, will it fall on you or will it fall on someone else in your place? All sin is deserving of God's wrath and punishment. God must, in order to be holy and just, he must execute his perfect justice. And maybe you're sitting here and saying, well, I, I, I think I'm still okay. I haven't been punished yet. My sin hasn't been exposed. My life seems to be going okay. I'm doing well financially, economically. My family seems pretty put together. I've got a great job. Life is good. Why, why do I need to deal with my sin? Peter, in 2 Peter 3.9 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If you haven't been judged yet for your sin, that is only because of God's patient mercy and his desire, listen, that you would come to grips with your sin against him, a holy God, and instead of living in your sin, you would turn and repent and trust in him and find true and everlasting life. The judgment of God can fall upon you and it will, if you do not repent, you will suffer God's wrath for all eternity in hell. But the Bible says this in Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen. listen, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. The judgment of God can fall upon you or it can fall upon Jesus in your place. And part of this story, listen, it, it, it's moving so quickly, I think in one sense, to, to help us see, listen, that the judgment of God can happen so fast. We think we're safe, we think we're secure, we, we, we think we've got all the time in the world, and just like that, in a blink of an eye, it could all be over. And in a moment, it could be too late. the call of scripture is that when you hear the truth of the gospel, the beautiful news, that listen, you can find mercy. You can find grace. You can be saved from your sin and restored to fellowship with God. The message of the Bible is don't wait another minute. Don't wait another day. Let today be the day of your salvation. He, He stands with open arms for all those who turn from their sin, who forsake it, who repent of it, and come running into his loving arms. Listen, he went to a cross in your place and took all All of the punishment, all of the guilt, all of the shame, so that you could be made right with Him. Don't wait another moment. And the good news is that He not only opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. I love how this ends. Look at verse one of chapter eight. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman. Look at this beautiful reversal. The enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. God's redemptive reversal here points us ultimately to the gospel, which is, by the way, if you haven't figured it out, it is the greatest redemptive reversal in all of history. God takes those who are under the edict of certain death and he he rescues them. He takes the humble and lowly and he places them in positions of kings. God takes the very weapon, this is the greatest irony of all. He takes the very weapon that Satan would use to destroy Jesus and the people of God, and the cross now becomes not only the instrument of our salvation, but the very instrument of Satan's destruction. What he meant for evil, God meant for our good. God takes all of our sin and judgment and then he gives us all of his righteousness and lavishes us with all the riches of his grace in Christ Jesus. In the great redemptive reversal of the gospel, Paul says it like this, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our destinies have been reversed and our enemy has been defeated. The cross of Jesus Christ is the pivot point of the great reversal of history where our sorrow has been turned to joy so that our king will receive all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise for all that he has done.